All right, welcome to another edition here of Beyond Eight Figures. Steve Osher hanging out with Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How are you, sir? Doing great. Good, Excited. good. Good, good. Mary Goulet doing her volunteer work in the world. And Wyatt Wade has it under control in the studio. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we sit down week after week with incredible entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million uh, or are currently running businesses that gross more than $10 million annually, and we get to the bottom of the tactics that help them to start and to scale and to exit from that business. And today, we are joined by Michael Coles. Michael, we got you on the line here, brother? I'm, I'm here. Good. Yeah, man. No, good. It's all good. And uh, we're looking forward to a great conversation with you, and we will rock and we will roll. So let, let's do this. Uh, first of all, we need to acknowledge those uh, wonderful folks who have taken the time to rate and review and subscribe to Beyond Eight Figures. Thank you so much for your kind words um, and really for spreading the word about what we're doing here on this show. And uh, and keep the guest suggestions coming, and we'll do our best to uh, to get as many of those folks on the show as possible. Uh, and you can email us at feedback at Beyond Eight Figures. That's the number eight. So feedback at Beyond Eight Figures. Dot com, and we'll do our best to get as many of those folks onto the show as we can. And, uh, and we do have some awesome guests coming up as well, starting to get into a lot more discussions around funding and venture capitalists and people who have taken their companies public and so on and so forth. So we've got some really interesting shows lined up as well. And, uh, and this one will certainly be no exception uh, because we've got uh, an incredibly successful entrepreneur on the phone with us, Michael Coles. Michael, how are you doing there, bud? I'm doing great. Uh, and I, as you were going through that description, I was like, I've done all that. Yeah, right? <laughs> yes, you have. And that's, uh, that's why we're super excited to get the connection working here and uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to be with us. So uh, here's what I want to start with. Um, first and foremost, how do you meet the criteria then of Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit from a company for more than $10 million? Do you currently run a business that grosses more than 10 or all of the above? All of the above. Okay, so tell us about the the exit and uh, and if you can share generally what the uh, dollar amount was on that. What was that company? And what was the exit? So uh, I guess the first successful exit I had would have been uh, the Great American Cookie Company. Okay, uh, my partner and I started that company with only eight thousand dollars. Believe it or not, borrowed twenty five thousand, grew it to the largest uh, franchise cookie store chain. Uh, in the world, uh, we sold a company who was doing over a hundred million dollars, and we sold it. Uh, at that time, we had about eleven million in EBITDA. I wish I were selling it today. But back then, we sold it for about uh, eight times EBITDA. Mm-hmm. So let's let's stop there and let's let's go through that discussion. So, and by the way, congrats on the on on that scale and that exit. I mean, it's nothing to shake a stick at. Of course, you wish you were doing it today, but but still, I mean, it's pretty. Impressive. It was clearly the best four thousand dollars I've ever invested. <laughs> right. So let let's do a couple of different things. First and foremost, talk to us about. And you know, we've heard horror stories in the past of people who have had great exits but have seen, I mean, zero from it. I mean, you can have a ton of equity that is worthless. Uh, how did you structure the deal so that did you actually pocket anything off of that? It was, a, it was an all-cash deal. So yeah, let's we, talk about, and from an ownership yeah, standpoint. Well, I shouldn't say it was all-cash. We, we, we had the company valued at the number that I talked about, and then we, we sold uh, a majority interest in the company. for We sold 70% of 
of the company, and uh, I stayed on. Uh, my partner exited the business, but I stayed on for the next five years. Uh, and then we actually exited the business a second time. So I sold off my, my balance of my shares, and so did my partner. But I was, you know, we had very good counsel when we exited, and uh, the advice was, you know, that what you get today, make sure you're happy with it because you never know what the future brings. And that mm-hmm. would be the advice I would give anybody that's exiting a company. If you're doing something with some form of earnout or some uh, ma- maintained share, uh, but you're giving up control of the business, you just need to be happy with whatever that turned out to be if nothing else happens after that. Fortunately for us, things did work out. Yeah, let's, so let's let's just dissect the exit here for a second. So had you brought on uh, either convertible debt or, or any sort of debt financing or pure equity, had you brought in any outside capital that would have, that would have resulted in dilution over the years? No. My partner and I, as I said, we started the company with what I talked about, eight grand, and we never took in. We were a franchise company, so we were able to grow the company. Uh, you know, I guess you could say on other people's money, we opened up stores. Uh, mostly as franchises. But, you know, as the company became more and more successful, we had a mixture of company stores and franchise stores. But, no, we never took on never took in wow. any investors, never took on any debt. Wow, that's so rare. So, yeah, yeah it is. And, and so let's talk about that. I mean, it's, so it's you and your buddy. How old are you at this point when you're starting? 33. 33. So you and your buddy, you like cookies. You're sitting around having some cookies and some milk, and you go, my God, we could make a better cookie. We could have a store. Is that kind of like how it started? Uh, well, not exactly, but uh, it's almost like that. Uh-huh. I mean, my partner and I were both, we, ne- we had no experience in the food business at all. Uh, we both uh, saw a cookie store in California at a clothing show. Both of us came out of the clothing business. And I think one of the reasons we were as successful as we were, we knew nothing about the baking industry. Hmm. We basically were running clothing stores that were selling cookies. So they were dramatically different. Uh, the stores did tremendous uh, volume. Uh, we were, I mean, we were almost in some ways an instant success from a revenue standpoint. But, you know, like every business, you know, we had our issues along the way. But, um, but like I said, I mean, we had plenty of partners, but they were franchisees and they didn't have any equity in our company. So and we hold great, on, I got to. I got I to gotta back you up for one second. So for those who are sitting around here thinking, wait a minute, connect the dots here for me. So you guys had this idea, uh, let's go ahead and, and open uh, a cookie store. But you're saying that the store that you opened actually was a clothing store that also had cookies? Did I hear you no, correctly? No, no, no. 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 Metaphor. No, Metaphor. No, no. Okay, I got you. No, so, no, what I'm basically saying is that most of the people, there were already uh, probably 300 cookie stores in the United States when we started. Yeah. And but the difference was that most of those people came out of the baking industry, mm-hmm. you know, like bakery store, bakeries. Sure. If you ever went to a bakery back, you know, back when we started in the seventies, you know, there was there was no point of purchase material. There was no excitement in those stores. There was no suggestive selling. Mm-hmm. You know, if you go to a traditional retail store, you get all of that. You've always got specials running. You got people. You know, if you're buying a shirt, would you like to get a tie? Mm-hmm. So the difference for us was, you know, if you buy six cookies, you know, we'll give you one free. Would you like a beverage with that? Uh, we also invented what is called commonly today the cookie cake, uh, which mm-hmm. is you know like for birthdays and how you know for uh, uh, Valentine's Day, a heart-shaped cookie in a box. I mean, we did a lot of 
very uh, innovative things back then. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing about the cookie cake is it changed the business, which uh, cookie stores were relying on, basically impulse, people smelling the cookie and coming in and buying them out. We knew from the very beginning mm-hmm. we'd never survive that way and that we had to find a way to change what was an impulse business to a destination business, and the cookie cake did that for us. People right. would have to order them and then come pick them up. So go ahead, Richie. Yeah, I was going to say, go, kind of going back to your metaphor when, when Steve was trying to connect those dots. So ultimately what I'm hearing is if you had gotten into the business because you were bakers, you probably would have been focusing on making a better cookie as opposed to focusing on running a better business. Well, yeah, I would say running a business, you know, and running a retail business where your focus is on customer and repeat business. Most bakeries, you know, they they really don't count on much of that, especially back in the day when bakeries were in malls, which you very seldom see today. But um, in, in connecting in connecting the dots, all those few hundred stores that were around when we started, by the time we had 100 stores, they were all gone. And basically, because you couldn't survive in a mall paying the kind of rent that you pay in a mall just selling individual cookies, you had to find a way to change the game. And I would say, you know, today the word disruptive is very common in business. We were a very disruptive business in a, in a business that was already about three or four years old, mm-hmm. we just saw a better way to do it. Yeah, I, I, and uh, so, and we didn't know any better. You know, I mean, that's the other point. We just didn't know any better than how to run a retail business. Well, you know, whether it was cookies or whatever it was. And then, you know, my background then took me to Caribou Coffee, and you know, again, it was a different kind of business. But basically, it's about taking care of customers. So I'm curious. With that metaphor, the second part of the question was, were you running franchise clothing stores? So you had experience doing franchises prior, or were they just a you know, one-off clothing store and you now also needed to learn franchises? No, the, back, back in the day when I was uh, running retail clothing stores, no, they were all company stores. Uh, and, and honestly, uh, I knew that there was a thing called franchising was a way of doing business, but really we didn't know very much about it. But, you know, both of us were pretty quick learners. Mm-hmm. Uh, we brought in some attorneys that were franchise experts, and we got books, and we learned about the franchise business. And one of the things we recognized right away is that successful franchisors, even though it's a David and Goliath relationship, the successful franchise companies, in fact, view their franchisees as partners, knowing that if they're successful, they'll be successful. Yeah. And uh, that's the way we did it. I would say even to this day, I mean, I sold the company in 1998. And to this day, I'm still friends with many of my franchisees. Mm-hmm. And, and I hate to do this, but I have to do this. We have to take a step backwards here still. I need to understand this. So $8,000, you put in four grand, he put in four grand. You're sitting there, you're going, okay, let's do something. What, did, you, did you open a store with that initial investment? Was that step one? Yes. Yeah, we opened the store at a mall in Atlanta called Perimeter Mall, and uh, in our first thirty days of business, we we you know we had to do twelve thousand dollars, which doesn't sound like much, but when you're only selling thirty seven cookies, it's a lot of cookies. Yeah, we had to do twelve thousand dollars to break even, and in our first thirty days, we did over thirty thousand dollars in that initial store. In its first year, did over five hundred thousand dollars. Wow. So, um, all right, so. 
how do you then make the leap towards scaling? So, I, I mean, there's a lot of folks out there who have one really good retail store. And the one really good retail store is a cash cow. I mean, it's doing great. It, it has a great reputation in its own you know, particular market. But they can't grow beyond that one location. Take us through what you did. Did you then take on debt at all in any way, shape, or form to open up your second location? Or did you use the cash flow from your first location to then open the second? Like, I'm trying to figure out what was the second step. So first step, I get it, you opened your store. What was the second step as you moved forward? All right, so the second step, uh, by the way, I have just recently published a book called Time to time to get tough, and yeah. all of this is in the book. I just been in great detail, but here's the point: it, it is, and this is the second... this is the audio book version of that. So for those for those who don't want to read, we're giving them the audio book right now. But yeah, it's a, it's it. a great it's a great it. book. It's but, a great book. But you, yeah, but you can't help you can't help me just do a sh- a shameless plug. Yes, no, no, anyway, no, absolutely. We'll let you do a lot of shameless plugs before we're done here for sure. Yeah. So uh, the second store, which I view as the reason the company. Uh, survived and thrived over the years was not because that second store did really well. The first store did so well that it was the cash flow of that store that allowed us to open up the second store. The second store opened, and from the day from the day we opened the door, it started losing money. The other store from the day we opened was a cash cow. And what happened was I had to step into – we couldn't afford to lose money. I mean, we didn't have any money to lose. And so when I stepped into the second store and tried to figure out why was the store doing so much less revenue than the first store, uh, first I had to figure that out. But finding the answer to that doesn't necessarily get you to the end, to, to changing the dynamic of losing money. Yeah. I realized that I was operating that store in the same way – I had been operating the first store at Perimeter Mall, which was we had a lot more people in the store, and I realized we didn't need as many people. Yeah. And so I started changing the the way the workflow of the store. And as I began to change it, uh, we continued to you know do more business, but because I had cut back the workforce, I realized that we didn't need as many people mm-hmm. as I thought we did uh, in that store to operate. And once I took those efficiencies from the store that had not done well and put it back to the original store at Perimeter, we started making even more money at Perimeter Mall. The whole model of the business changed because we opened a store that didn't do as well. Mm -hmm. I've I've said this over and over. It's Greenbrier, which was our second store. That's the reason the company became so successful, because we really learned how to operate the business. And then the third store is the third store is when we decided to franchise. And so the money for the third store basically came from the franchisee. And we didn't open another company store for probably five more stores. And then the money that we were making off of both the franchise stores and our existing stores, we were able to continue to grow. And we wound up, uh, when we sold the company, I know it's going to be hard to believe, we had no debt mm-hmm. to speak of. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's talk about your first key hire. So it's you and your buddy, and you've got two stores. I mean, then you can go and you can, I mean, you can oversee one of the stores. 
your buddy can go and he can oversee. The other store is needed. Let's let's talk about let's talk about uh, the first key hire then. So you had obviously people, you know, time to make the donuts. I mean, you had people doing that fun stuff, you know, mixing the batter and this, that, and the other. I don't need to get into all of that with you, but l- the first key hire that really helped you to scale, uh, who was the first salaried employee outside of people just running stores? Okay, so uh, my partner and I, we were in, we, we had, you know, when we first opened the first store, I mean, it was us. I mean, basically, yeah. we were in ourselves. And then, you know, we started hiring people to work in the stores. But I would say about a year and a half after we had the company up and running, we, we ran an ad uh, to hire, like, a director of operations. And my partner and I had still not taken any salaries out of the business. We were at the point we were going to be able to start taking some money out of the business. And we ran this ad, and we were looking for, like, an area supervisor. A guy came in and applied for the job who was so far overqualified for the job that when we were interviewing him, we basically said to him, you know, we, we don't have the kind of money to hire you. And I said, he said, why would you want to do it? He said, look, I've been running half the country for this burger operation. He said, I don't really have much of a future there. He said, their company is not doing well. I don't know what's going to happen to it. This seems like a great business. I'm willing to take a cut, but I can't come to work for what you're offering. Uh, but I could come to work, and he threw out this number. And the number was about the number we were going to start taking, you know, mm-hmm. if you divide it in half. And uh, my partner was like, you know, I don't, we got to talk about this. And he stepped in the other room. This guy's name was Tom Lynch. And uh, we basically looked at each other and said, well, we're just going to have to go longer without taking a salary. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to take this business where we think we can, this is the guy that can help us do it. Mm-hmm. And so we wound up foregoing our salaries. We hired a guy that was so far over what we needed at the moment, but he was with us till the very end of the company because he had the experience of running a multi-unit, multi-state operation. We had no experience doing that. And by hiring the right guy that, and I think that's what happens to a lot of companies, they wind up hiring people for today, and they don't even though, and they think they'll grow and they'll be able to groom them or whatever it may be. I'm telling you, I've learned, if I learned one lesson, it's that you've got to hire people based on where you want to go, not where you are. Yeah. And sometimes it's a tough decision economically, but it is the right decision. And there's no doubt the success we had was that type of thinking every time we brought mm-hmm. someone in. When our batter facility had to get bigger, we didn't, you know, hire someone and figured he would just grow into the job. We hired someone who had already done what we needed, and yeah. we brought them in. So, and let's talk about that for a second. So, takes, you know, I'm sure he took a little bit of a cut, but he still needed to get paid. You paid him more than you probably were comfortable with, but you did it. Did you also have to break off a piece of equity for him? No. Really? No. He came, no. So he came on purely for cash, no upside at all? Well, no. I mean, he, he was paid well, and when we exited, uh, you know, we took care of him at the end. But we never gave up any equity to anybody. Interesting. Could you still do that today? I don't, and I don't know if you could do that today, that's, honestly. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering, right? 
I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you could do that today. I mean, and part of it is, you know, the the buzz back then, there was no buzz about giving people equity. I mean, it's just that just didn't happen. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Well, you you know, and it's uh, you were the beneficiaries then of, of good timing in terms of being able to do that. What was the uh, the burger chain that he was working for? Is it still in the business? I, I don't even know. It was, it was kind of an East Coast burger chef. Gotcha. I'm sure you've probably never heard of it. Yeah. I, and I don't think it's around anymore. I mean, he was right. The handwriting yeah. was on the wall. So and McDonald's and you know Burger King were just giants. Yeah. And they, you know, he probably figured he had maybe two more years where he was. But the point is, is that it was the excitement about really being to help a company grow that was part of the reason that he wanted to come. And he was well compensated over the years. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's let's talk about the franchise structure since it's an interesting model. Uh, my grandfather actually was one of the first people to ever franchise anything. Uh, he started franchising foremost liquor stores uh, out of Chicago back in 1939. So he was pretty wow. early. Yeah, he was pretty early on into that whole franchising discussion. Um, and so, I mean, I have some familiarity with what takes place in the franchise system there. What what was the franchise structure that you had in place when you first brought on your, your store number three? What, what Did they pay you an upfront fee? Did they pay you a percentage of yeah. sales? Did they pay you uh, an ongoing marketing-type uh, budget? Like, how, how was that? What did that structure look like? And then towards the end, what did it look like? So uh, the franchise fee when we first started was $15,000 for the, for the fee. The royalty... We debated after reading a lot of books and talking to, a fr- to franchise attorneys. Uh, most of them at the time were anywhere between five and six percent uh, royalty and a two percent um, advertising fee. We figured that five was about right for the cookie business and two percent was about right for an advertising fee. But we didn't do it that way. We did just a straight seven percent because we didn't want to ever get into an argument with franchisees as to whether or not we were spending their 2%. Mm-hmm. You know, we wanted to be able to help them and work with them, but we didn't want to have to go through an accounting of yeah. how that 2% was being spent. And so we charged 7%, uh, $15,000 uh, franchise fee, which at the time we exited had gotten all the way up to about 30000 But The percentage of the royalty never changed, but we sold them all of their batter, all the product, to make brownies, cookies, all of that, we sold them then. And that was a profit center for the company. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I'm actually very proud to tell you this, that the entire royalty that they paid us, not just the 2%, but that 5% plus 2%, we put every penny of that back into operations and marketing. Mm-hmm. We that we made our money on the product that we sold. Yeah. And we want because we wanted our franchisees to be very successful and very strong, and so we we you know we put on plenty of operating people to go out and visit stores and help them in their business, and we did plenty of marketing material which they got for free; they didn't have to pay for it, uh, and so it was a, it was a great relationship. And that was seven percent of gross, correct? Seven percent of gross. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so th- let me just make sure that that I'm clear on this. As as things progressed, how many stores did you have then at your peak that were corporate owned and that were franchised? We had uh, uh, about sixty corporate stores, which were all for sale except for Atlanta. Uh, in other words, we would we would get a lease. We would we, whether we found the franchisee or not, 
we would go ahead and sign the lease, open the store. Hopefully in the time we were building it, we'd find a franchisee. But if not, we would then open that store and sell it as an ongoing business. And frankly, it was a better deal for us because when you're selling an ongoing business, you have to sell it for just the you know, $15,000 or $20,000 yeah. franchise. You actually sold it based on a, a revenue model that we had built. Hmm. And so, um, yeah, that, that was kind of, you know, how it, the evolution of the business. We had about 350 or so franchise stores. We had about 400 stores in total. Yeah. And did you create a separate entity for the, for the, the hard good side of the equation here? In other words, when you sold the company, were you just selling the stores, or, or did you include then also the, the I assume there was some sort the of... The subs- facility, the batter facility. Yeah, I mean, I assume, did you structure that as a subsidiary? Did you structure that as just part no. of the company? In hindsight, should you have structured it as a wholly owned subsidiary or something of that nature? I think we could have tried. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? But I don't think we... Yeah, we listen, we, we, we had the building that the batter facility in as a separate entity, and we tried to pull that out of the deal and just charge rent right? uh, to, yeah. the, to the acquire, right? But uh, they were like, no. Because you could have, I mean, <laughs> so, you, you, you could have ostensibly yeah. taken the same batters and whatnot and sold that on a wholesale level to other facilities we, that we weren't your have. own. Yeah, we could have. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, maybe we would, maybe today we would have, but back in the day, you know, we were, we were very happy with people that we had brought in that we sold the company to. They were great partners. Um, and, you know, you know, there's an old saying that we have in the South, you know, pigs get fat yeah. and hogs get slaughtered. slaughtered. So mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it was, it, was, it was a good deal for us. And so you were able to exit twice on this. So you exited first when you let go of 70% of this, but you kept 30%, and that was through an earnout. Now your partner was out of it. But you kept thirty percent. How long did you? Well, fifteen you... each. I had fifteen percent. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. So he got out, and he still yeah. kept the fifteen percent in the earnout, which ostensibly right. you were managing at that point because you stayed on. Well, he that's completely right. got out, so you were responsible for making his fifteen percent worth even more as well. So he must be pretty damn thankful for what you were able to do with that. So what <laughs> were what were the terms of the earnout? It was uh, basically it was uh, uh, we were just on an equal basis. For whatever happened on the exit, when the exit happened, uh, which we all had to agree to, mm-hmm. uh, we I would just get fifteen percent of what we ultimately sold the company for. But and you were eventually. But you were salaried, and you had upside to stay on. I did. Yeah, I had a bonus and a bonus salary to run the business, and um, yeah, it was it was it was a great deal. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a great deal. I'm still friends with the you know initial people that we sold to, and. Uh, but you know, well, I would just say this: it, it's a learn, learning experience. Anytime you start or, or are involved in a business that you sell, you learn from the exit. Just like the things you just suggested, you know, would today I think about that? Sure, but back then, you know, it, it just didn't occur to me about separating maybe the the manufacturing end of it out, or at least today I would have said, look. We'll run the manufacturing facility. We'll make sure we supply the stores, but we also want to run a wholesale business with a different recipe. We won't use the same recipe. Mm-hmm. I probably would have done that today or tried to yeah. anyway. And but, uh, but you know, I, during that period of time, I had actually uh, gotten into the banking business as well. 
And so we had started a bank in a small community up in Georgia, and we eventually uh, bought another bank and took the entity public. And in 2000, uh, I also exited uh, that. We sold it to a public bank. Mm. And then a few years later, that's when I went to take over Caribou Coffee in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. Just so, to, just And just to close the loop on the exits of – uh, the cookie side of the equation, and we could talk for days here, man, and maybe we'll have you back on at some point in the future here. But um, $88 million or roughly was the original exit. Was the second exit far in excess of that when the 30%? No. no. It, it wasn't, no. And, and, and you know, we, we had what I would consider, we had about, well, we exited with uh, our 70%. The, the valuation of the business was probably about 110% value. In other words, it was not, it was, in other words, what we got at that time was over what, what market was paying mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. And so when I say we sold 70%, we probably got 85% of, the, of what we would have gotten if we had sold 100% I see. Because, of the, because of it being over that. And I would say that when we sold the balance of the business, which was three years later, um, you know, we, we probably got what the value was at about the time we sold. Mm-hmm. It was not. It was not great. It could have, but it wasn't bad. You know yeah. what I mean? It wasn't like it was like we got nothing. We did okay. Another little but payday. But it was payday not. And, and and it'd be a long, long story to tell sure. you all the ins and outs of that. But you know, yeah. it's fine. Yeah, and we don't have to go into all those details. But obviously, you'd establish yourself as a capable operator, as somebody who was a capable executive, and so on. So we don't need to get into the details of how Caribou ended up finding you. But Caribou comes knocking. How many stores do they have? How uh, what, what's their revenue when when you end up taking on the CEO role? So uh, they had about 180 stores, uh, and the re- they were doing about uh, um, probably about 170 million, maybe 165 million, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And um, they were uh, they had been in negative same store sales for about three years. When I got there, the company was not growing at all, mm-hmm. uh, and but they had an extraordinarily powerful brand. They had the it was, it was the first company I had ever been involved in where I would say that they were a brand religion. You know, people walked around with caribou T-shirts, mm-hmm. caribou caps, mm-hmm. and, and if you think about it today, which is one of the things that really intrigued me about doing it, I still to this day have never been in a Starbucks where I've ever seen anybody wearing a Starbucks baseball cap or a T-shirt. You know, Starbucks is a ubiquitous, very good company, but people go there primarily because of the convenience of where they are. There's not necessarily that kind of brand loyalty. And what I saw with Caribou's loyalty was all I could think of was brands like Harley-Davidson, Apple Computer. You all know the history of those companies. They've all had terrible problems, Mm -hmm. but they had such a loyal fan base of evangelists you know, that would tout the product that they were able to struggle through hard times before they kind of reinvented themselves. Mm -hmm. And so I thought to myself, man, this could be amazing for me to have the opportunity to try to turn a brand like this around and and make it, let it go from good to great. Yeah. uh, But by bringing out what's the best of the brand. And so where, uh, where, where did you take it then at its peak? So uh, I took it in, in six months. Uh, we, turned the, we turned the company around from negative same-store sales to positive same-store sales for the next double-digit 
uh, increased sales because I know the first thing someone say, well, if you're negative same store sales, sure you could turn it around, you know, the first year into positive same store sales, but for the next two and a half years we ran double digit uh, positive same store sales to the point that in September of um, 2005, two years after I got to two and a half years after I got to the company, we took it public. Mm. And had you, when they brought you on, unlike uh, Lynch, when they brought you on, did you ask for a piece of equity of that thing? I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> See, you were, you learned yeah. from Lynch. There you go. Right. Yeah. You negotiated yeah. a better deal for yourself. So what, what were you able to negotiate uh, in, in those original terms when they brought you on? Um, well, I, you know, not only did I, did I wind up getting uh, options and some uh, <clears throat> other, other stock, but I also uh, bought into the company. Mm. Uh, I bought in myself and I, a, a group of people in Atlanta that kind of thought that, well, you know, if I was going to do this, maybe they would do okay. But we wound up buying, I think we at the peak, we had about 5% of the company, maybe as much as 10% mm. of the company with all those folks that I brought in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it turned out to be a good deal for everybody, you know, uh, we we went public, you know, when the window was open, and unfortunately, in 2005, uh, that window lasted about maybe two months. And that window shut down, and so we, like a lot of other, uh, what I would say, casual, you know, food operations, started. Uh, stock did not do well, mm-hmm. uh, but I ran the company until 2008, and I stayed on the board until we eventually sold the company mm-hmm. uh, in 2012. Yeah, uh, and everyone that was involved did just fine. Did they end up getting delisted, or did? Uh, how, how, yeah, they took the company yeah. private. Yeah, yeah, they took the company private. And matter of fact, very big company now. It's a German. It was a German office that bought it. German family office that bought it, and they've bought. They've been like on a rampage of buying mm-hmm. uh, different uh, coffee entities. They bought uh, everything from Pete's Coffee, which I'm sure you know sure. on the West Coast. Sure. They bought Pete's. They bought uh, Einstein's Bagels. They bought Krispy Kreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, they bought uh, Green Mountain Coffee, which is Keurig. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, they, Coffee they, and donuts. Yeah, they've done a lot of stuff. So, <laughs> so they've done well. And as you said, I know you cover a lot of this uh, in your book, Time to Get Tough. And, uh, and, and so we definitely encourage folks to go out uh, and pick up a copy of Michael Cole's book there. Uh, are you still looking for new opportunities or what, where's your head at right now? Well, uh, for the last uh, six years, I went back into the banking business uh, in uh, 2013 and eventually became chairman of the board of a bank uh, out of Atlanta called Brand Bank. Uh, and I stayed on that stayed, stayed as chairman until last September uh, when we sold the bank to Renaissance Bank. We grew the bank from about $700 million, uh, when we got started at $2.5 billion mm. uh, when we sold it. And uh, so uh, as of last September, I found myself once again not really doing much in the way of running a business or doing anything. And so I've invested in a bunch of different things. But honestly, I would love to find something. Uh, to do that is more of a turnaround. I really loved my experience at Caribou, coming in and leading a team. No, none of the people I knew. Yeah. I made plenty of mistakes in uh, 
when I first stepped in, none of which I would make again. Yep. I'd make other ones, other yeah. mistakes, but not the same mistakes. Yep. But yeah. uh, it was fun. I mean, it was fun leading a new, you know, leading a new team and getting them to buy into a vision of, you know, maybe beyond what they thought the company could do. And uh, I don't think I'd want to go in and just run something. You know what I mean? I wouldn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. I'd want to go in and have a real challenge to mm-hmm. get something on the right track. If, yep. in fact, it can be on the right track. You know, every, that doesn't mean every business can be successful. Yeah, but sure. there are some that you know struggle, and a lot of it just has to do with just tweaks that the business needs to kind of get themselves on the right path. Mm-hmm. Well, look, man, we, uh, we appreciate you spending some time with us here on Beyond Eight Figures. And uh, like I said, I'm sure we could talk uh, for many, many hours about all the fun things that you've done and what the future holds for you as well. But... Certainly encourage everybody to go out and uh, grab a copy copy of Michael's book, Time to Get Tough. And, uh, of course, we'll all keep our ears to the ground for opportunities for you as well. Michael Coles, thank you so much for joining us here on Beyond Eight Figures. For Richie Ote and Mary Goulet, who will be back next week. White Whale in the Dallas studio. Kelly was got under control back at headquarters. I am Steve Olsher, and we'll talk to you next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.